Hello, Father. I'm your new curate, Father. If you'll excuse my appearance. No, no, it's not possible. The bishop may have a grudge against me. He may think of a mouthful of clover and can't preach. But even the bishop wouldn't do a thing like this to me. <laughs> I see what you mean. Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Dahl. And this week we started the 1944 nominees with the winner, Going My Way, starring Bing Crosby and some other people who I had never heard of before and will immediately forget, probably. Yeah. Or have already forgotten. (laughs) I genuinely just now when you said this one, I was like, oh shit, it did? This movie is aggressively fine, as we both said to each other several times before recording (laughs) began, but it's aggressively fine in such a weird way. Yeah. Because I think we also both had the experience of just being completely lost at sea for the first 20 minutes of this movie. The first 20 minutes, you think this movie is going to be an absolute disaster. Because the only major conflict in this film sets up a very, very boring movie that is extremely cliched. I don't know if it would have been in 1944, but certainly is at this point, which is the local community place, in this case, a church, is threatened with foreclosure by a big bad bank guy. Yeah. And then that kind of ceases to be the conflict in well that's not true it continues to be the conflict it's just it isn't really present in the film very much at all (laughs) i mean here's the thing is it is the entire plot of the film and i think as the entire plot of the film it takes up maybe 10 minutes of screen time because the entire rest of the movie is just bing crosby going hey here's someone i know yeah and to say that it takes up 10 minutes of screen time includes Not one, but two musical numbers. (laughs) Yeah. The the lion's share of screen time of this is Bing Crosby is a cool young priest that's going to sit backwards in a chair and tell you why drugs suck. But the 1944 version of that, which is he golfs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, and he also encourages kids not to get involved with gangs. Right. Or young women not to live in sin. And so get married very young. Here's the weird thing about this movie. Here's why I think this movie almost doesn't work. And why it is really only saved by Bing Crosby, Bing Crosby and his way through this movie. Yes, which he does very well and very smoothly. (laughs) This movie has no real point of view character for you. And so I was just constantly lost at sea about what I was supposed to think about anything that was happening until well after it happened. Mm. Because Bing Crosby's character, one of the ways that he's supposed to be sort of like a wise, helpful priest is like, he doesn't really say what he's thinking all the time. He's got a plan always, but sometimes he, you know, lets the good Lord find his way to, to helping people or whatever. And the result then is that he like goes over to a young woman's apartment and just asks a lot of follow-up questions about her new boyfriend, plays a song for her on the piano, and then leaves. And you go, what the fuck was that? What was she (laughs) supposed to get out of that? What was I supposed to get out of that? No idea. (laughs) 
And then 15 minutes later, like you say, she and the guy have gotten married. And you're like, I guess Bing Crosby singing a song about a picnic made them decide to get married? Uh, sure. <laughs> like, I... <laughs> I think I and I guess that was the goal. I mean that that's as good a reason as any else that is submitted by this film. <laughs> and like sometimes that is a disaster. Like the first 20 minutes of this film, you don't know what you're supposed to think about Bing Crosby because people are constantly telling him he's an asshole. But those people are also kind of assholes. And so it is only when his friend shows up and explains the plot of the movie 20 minutes in that he has been transferred to this new church in New York City and keeps being super casual about everything that he does. Yes. But is super confident he's not going to get fired. And you're like, this guy's just an oblivious asshole, I guess. <laughs> it is 20 minutes into the movie before his friend arrives and goes, hey, so you're actually the boss and you're just not telling the guy who thinks he's the parish priest boss. Because he's old and we don't want to hurt his feelings. Right. And then you go, oh, okay, I understand what this movie is. I understand what I was supposed to think about all of those earlier scenes where people were an asshole to Bing Crosby. I get what movie I'm in now, finally. <laughs> but that's a long ways into the movie. Right. The other big example of that is the terrible picnic song that 40 minutes of this movie is dedicated to we just got to get this terrible picnic song in front of record executives and you're like i guess this is just one of those screen test of time things where this song just isn't very good but in 1944 everybody thought it was really good and they do all this build up and get Bing Crosby's friend who sings at the Met to put on a huge performance of this song. And it's still not very good. And then the record executives go, that song's not very good. And then leave. And he goes, ah, oh, dang. Okay, well, let's play the other one, everybody. And start playing Swinging on a Star. And you're like, well, you had that in your back fucking pocket for the last 40 minutes. <laughs> Well, and what's also really funny to me about that whole scene, which comes very close to the end, but fuck it, who cares, is that the picnic song, the record executive tells them, oh, well, you know, we're just not really buying anything that's good right now. We just want trash. <laughs> Do you have any trash? Right. And he says, oh, no, I don't, but I've got this one song. And then the record executive hears it, says, yeah, it's just as I thought, it's a it's a good song and we don't want that, walks out and then they do Swinging on a Star and he comes back and says, well, that's a piece of trash. I'd like to buy that. And like, I, to be fair, that actually is internally consistent because Swinging on a Star is the musical equivalent of a popcorn movie. Yes. It is sonically a fucking Transformers film. <laughs> it, but I like it. Sure. Okay. Yeah. But it is weird that the movie is smarter than you think it is consistently, but it's so stupid about telling you whether it's smart or not that I just constantly was doubting it for the entire runtime. Mm, yeah. Plot lines consistently resolve in ways where I thought, oh, that's smart. That's cute. I like that. But then getting there, I'm like, ooh, gee, is he going to say some shit to this lady that doesn't want to live with her parents? Uh, is he going to, like, try and fuck this 18-year-old? Like, what's happening? 
what I'm I'm constantly like the only reason I knew that wasn't going to happen is because the code and the guy's a priest. There was no way that that was going to happen. Right, but like is this a movie? But the energy was really flirty. The energy was super flirty and also it was like is this a movie about how he shouldn't be in the priesthood because he's too Bing Crosby to be a priest? Which I was still kind of going like, is that what we're doing? You're right, because of the code, that could never possibly be the answer. But I was still desperately searching for what this movie could be at that point in the film. Yeah, I thought it was going to then be about saving the runaway 18-year-old girl and helping her achieve her dream of being a singer without ending up manipulated and taken advantage of by creepy New York song executives. Yeah, this movie got made into a short-lived TV series in the 60s, which makes a lot of sense, both because, like, it's a kind of popular movie with a very broad setup, but also because this movie is a series of 20-minute episodes. Right, yeah. Like, structurally, this movie is like, what if there was a young priest? (laughs) Like, and the answer to that question is, I don't know, some things happen. (laughs) Like, he meets an ex-girlfriend that doesn't know he's a priest that's now singing at the Metropolitan Opera. He starts a choir with some young boys. He talks to a bank owner and goes, you own a bank. There are all of these subplots, but it's weird to call them subplots because there's really no overarching plot. The overarching plot, as you say, is the church has a loan. That's gonna be difficult to solve, you guess, but also... At no point in the movie does anyone seem all that worried about the loan. People go like, dang, what are we going to do about the loan? And then they go, I don't know, let's sing another song. And you go, I guess the loan thing's going to be fine. Or, I don't know, I'm going to run into my ex-girlfriend who sings at the Met now and then go watch her perform in Carmen for How long is that whole scene? The thing is, uh, this movie had a very weird effect on me time-wise because it's actually rather long. It's just over two hours. Mm -hmm. And the first, I don't know, 20 minutes of it definitely made me feel like, oh God, this is going to be one of those interminable movies and they're going to have to do all of these melodramatic things to save the church. Mm -hmm. And then none of that happened and it was all very, very light. And every time there were any stakes that seemed really high, everything turned out okay pretty effortlessly. So whatever. But because of that and because there was so very little tension in the whole film, it felt really long, but I was kind of okay with it. Yeah, I am fine with this movie, but it is this weird movie where, like, I kind of can't deconstruct it. It's not great. It's also not terrible. I'm not sure I can tell you why. Because it, it, besides just Bing Crosby, I feel like I just have a Charlie Day serial killer wall, and it's instead of Pepe Silve, it's just Bing Crosby in the middle. (laughs) I don't understand what this movie is about. I don't understand what I'm supposed to think about anything. I could not tell you who the second lead is because there's eight options, but I do know one thing, and that one thing is Bing Crosby. Yeah, yeah. This movie has kind of the same effect on you as Bing Crosby's voice. (laughs) It is very gentle. It is very soft. It is very enveloping. 
it just lowers your blood pressure completely. Yeah. But it's not super engaging. It's like a television show that you put on and just let run on Netflix because it's quiet and you have a hangover and you still need to clean your house. It's a law and order marathon of a movie for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You just look up and Sam Waterston is saying something about the constitution and you're like, Oh, thank God. And then you zone out for another eight minutes. <laughs> like I, it's fine. Or like a West Wing marathon. Mm. Cause in law and order, there's crime. <laughs> That's fair. But like, other than that first scene where someone's like, I'm just jogging with my dog through Central Park. I'm telling you, you got to break up with that guy. I found a body. <laughs> other than that, crime never actually comes up in law and order, like law and order proper. That's true. Good timing on Oscar's part there. Yes. With I'm just jogging with my dog through Central Park and he totally heard his cue. I'm very impressed. Oh, yeah. He's the talent. Have we ever... This is... This is for an audience of no one. So please cut it out. Have we ever sent you... You know I will leave it in now. (laughs) Have we ever sent you the video of the blue jean commercial that Oscar is in? That a friend of Nikki's borrowed Oscar for a day... To shoot with him where he has gotten his nickname of the talent? Uh, no, but I'm a little upset that you haven't. I, we will we will try and find it. This is a friend that we leave Oscar with regularly. So there is, in addition to the actual Blue Jean commercial cut, there is a cut that he calls the Oscar cut, where he just cut all the footage they got of our dog together and just <laughs> made a minute and a half long commercial that has eight seconds of narrative and a minute and 20 seconds of my dog. I would love to see this. And I'm definitely going to link it from the episode page. I am not sure you can, because I think he just sent us like an MP4. I'm not sure it's online anywhere. Oh, like it wasn't released. No, it was, I think it was a spec commercial. Ah, okay. But I I will double check about that with Nikki. And if it turns out it was like an actual commercial commercial, then we can leave this in. Or we leave it in anyway. And then the audience is like, why are you doing this? And I'm like, the reason is, otherwise we're talking about this movie. (laughs) And we've already run out of things to say about this movie. Because, yeah, he's a young priest. He has, I guess, a cute relationship with the old priest. But honestly, who cares? Who's very Irish. The old priest is very Irish. Like from the old country. Makes Bing Crosby sing Tura Lura Lura. And they're immediately best friends after that, which actually is the most (laughs) scrutable part of this entire movie, is that for the first hour, the priest goes, I don't like you. You're too young and also young. And then Bing Crosby sings Tura Lura Lura, and he's like, you're my closest friend in the world. I've never loved anyone more. (laughs) And you're like, okay, sure. Um, Uh, Some other random things that happen. The local bad boys who dress in striped t-shirts and high-waisted trousers because it's 1944 (laughs) steal a turkey and give it to the older priest. And then Bing Crosby finds out that they stole the turkey and tells the older priest while they're eating the turkey. I also want to take a moment to talk about those two young boys Because they're supposed to be playing, I assume, teenage boys. And it is wet, hot American summer levels of not even trying to disguise that these are full-grown adult men. (laughs) Like, they have dressed them like teenage boys, but otherwise they're like 
pushing 30. So I'm going to blow your mind. Okay. Stanley Clements, who plays Tony Scaponi, the most New York (laughs) teen gang member name of all time, is 18 in this film. He looks 30. 35? (laughs) Yes. How old is the other one? Because one of them looks too old to play that part, and the other one looks like the first one's dad. The other one was 17. What the fuck? Yeah, I don't know. They They saw some shit. (laughs) Like, they look so old. I am sorry, 18-year-old in 1944, Stanley Clements. And you know why I I know this, right? It's because I had the exact same reaction and looked it up and thought, (laughs) how old are these people they're trying to convince me are teens? They're teens. They're they're teens. (laughs) That's insane. That's the, the... that. And yet, in a weird way, that's a Schenectady for this entire movie. Because it's you like... You mean a Schenectady? Yes, I do. <laughs> uh, fucking Charlie Kaufman, can I take a moment to say that that... Susan loves that movie beyond all word and all reason. It's one of my favorite movies, yes. And a lot of people hate it, which I understand that they do. I don't understand why, but I understand that they do. I am fine on the movie itself. But the fact that it makes me double check my math and get it wrong every fucking time. (laughs) Because you're like, it must be Synecdoche, New York. Therefore, it's Schenectady is a small representation of the whole. Yep. I blame you, Charlie Kaufman. But also thank you for adaptation and for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Two of the greatest films ever made. I'll say one out of two, yes. But wait, do you not like... Not a huge adaptation fan. Oh, see, this is so... This is... (laughs) Is this the two genders? Yes, there are two types of people in the world. There are people whose gender is adaptation and those whose gender is synecdoche in New York. <laughs> Listen, if Tumblr were still a going concern, I could have a devoted following of people just, just trying to lay that out as a thesis statement every day. Yes. And then there are people who are non-binary for whom it is just being John Malkovich. Yeah. So yeah, back to going my way. <laughs> I guess. Also, like, I don't know. There's nothing. Oh, we forgot the part where Father O'Malley runs away. Not O'Malley. Sorry, Father Fitzgibbon. O'Malley is Bing Crosby. The old priest, Father Fitzgibbon, like, just straight up runs away from the parish. That's so weird. Like a child. And it's pointed out that he runs away like a child. Yeah. After the cops find him, they're like, remember to pack a peanut butter sandwich next time, old man. And it's like, Okay, first of all, fucking good one. (laughs) Second of all, though, that really is the whole plot. Like, we're not really doing anything else with it. He doesn't have, like, some secret that he's keeping or anything. He just decided to run away in a huff. But he packs everything, and he's 70 years old or something, and he's probably got a good amount of stuff, right? I would think. Yeah. Packs up all of his stuff and runs away and just comes back. Okay, and nothing ever comes of that. That's a big thing in this movie, is that a lot of things that would normally have, I don't know, repercussions of some kind or would go on for longer, just get wrapped up in the time that it would take for it to get wrapped up in a 20-minute episode of television. Yeah, the other example of this, which is the opposite of this, is... After they do Swing It on a Star and the record executives are like, that song sucks, we'll take a (laughs) hundred. 
you go like, well, I guess all their problems are solved and the movie's over. And then you check and it's like, well, there's 20 more minutes. How can there be more movie? And right as you think that, someone runs in and goes, you've got to come quick. The church is on fire. Oh, yeah. See, and I forgot about that. And then the church burns down and then that's fine. Yeah. Father Fitzgibbon just goes over to the other church that's nearby in the neighborhood and then Bing Crosby moves on to the next church and you realize that he's kind of this parish fixer? Yeah. Where he basically came to make sure that they could somehow raise the money to pay the mortgage, which they did, and also had enough left over for the old priest's mom to come over from Ireland. Yeah. Because he gets sick and he gets a cold because he goes out in the cold to raise money to rebuild the church and gets $35 or something. Yeah. (laughs) And pneumonia. It's so weird. It's the opposite almost of a Bingle Lancer thing. Where every time I explain this movie more or think about this movie more, I like it less. And I don't want to. I like this movie just fine. I don't want to think about this movie to the degree that the podcast asks of us in a weird way. Because when it, like, you just let the Bing Crosby of it all wash over you, then it's like, fine. But then when you try and recount what happens in it, it's like trying to tell a friend a dream you had, where you realize, like, oh, this isn't interesting. This isn't good. (laughs) This is actually a bad story, and I'm wasting my time. Right. Well, and in the same way where things just jump from one moment to the next. Mm -hmm. You know, it starts out, and I'm in the grocery store, and I'm shopping for avocados, and then I run into my third grade teacher, and then suddenly we are at my gym and none of it makes any sense or matters at all to anyone who hasn't experienced it in fact let me actually do that with the plot of this film because we have been really incoherent about the plot of this film so i'm going to as coherently as possible say the plot of this film as if i david daw were Father Timmy O'Dowd, the Bing Crosby character. Yes. So I am in New York, and I'm like a young priest, and I've hit a baseball through a local window, and I get into an argument with a local atheist, and that atheist just refuses to practice forgiveness, even though I say that I am going to pay him back for his broken window. And then I just leave, and I go to my new job at the church and change into, like, my baseball sweats, And my new priest is very angry at me, but I'm kind of just chill about it. Like, I don't really care at all. (laughs) And I say, my friend is coming to visit. And my friend is called. And I go, hand me the phone so I can talk to my friend. And I just sort of chill and talk to my friend and say, like, oh, I don't know if this new thing is going to work out, wink, wink, but like in a way where the priest can't hear, like can't know for certain what I'm talking about. And then my friend comes to visit and tells me that I'm actually the boss. And that the old guy only thinks he's in charge. And so I start being in charge and doing things like taking some like local bad boy youths and taking them to baseball games and encouraging to start a choir with me and like trying to make inroads with the guy that like has a big loan out on the church. And then eventually my ex-girlfriend calls me and she works at the Metropolitan Opera now And she doesn't know that I'm a priest, but she eventually figures it out and is immediately fine with it and invites me to see her play Carmen in Carmen. 
And I watch her from the wings and wave goodbye after she, you know, does the big show-stopping number from Carmen. And then I go and I work with the choir kids some more and start noodling around with my own personal song. Oh, I've also met this 18-year-old girl that's run away from home. And, like, I think that that's a bad thing, I think. But also, I'm fine with it because she's really, really good at singing. But also, that never comes up again. Because instead, she started to have a relationship with the son of the bank owner that has a loan on the church. And uh, at first, the old priest is very upset about this. But then I go play a song about a picnic at them. And that makes them decide to get married and makes the son decide to join the <laughs> army. Then I try and play my song about a picnic to a bunch of record executives to get enough money to save the church. And they don't like my song about a picnic because it's too good. And instead I play swinging on a... But you forgot the part about how your boys choir and your ex-girlfriend who sings at the Met are the ones performing it. Right. And they're performing it at the Metropolitan Opera to get these record executives to show up. And then they play the song... And it's, much like the film I am in, aggressively fine. <laughs> and then the record executives go like, well, we don't want a song that's aggressively fine. We want empty pop bullshit. And then I start playing Swingin' on a Star. And then the record executives come in and go, well, that's the hit. And then we have the money to pay for the church and everything's fine. But then the church burns down. But then that's also fine. And then I brought the old priest's mom and we get along really well. But I have to move along. And so his new assistant slash boss is my buddy who he doesn't like very much. Anyway, then I woke up. <laughs> it does actually make more sense when told as if it were a dream. <laughs> in that it doesn't make any damn sense. You will go along with me that that was a pretty accurate recounting of the plot of this film, right? Oh, yeah. I played that up a little but mostly that was as straight a linear telling of this film as I could do. Yeah. And yet, weirdly, I'm going to be like, I don't know, seven, six or seven, somewhere in there. Uh, yeah, I'm going to say I'm going to say a six. Yeah. Because I don't think that it is a well-crafted film. No. <laughs> for the reasons you just displayed. <laughs> oh, for sure. But it's so inoffensive and so aggressively fine and just like a cinematic bubble bath. I'm glad someone made it. I'm going to be very surprised if I or if you agree that it is the best film for this year of the nominees. Oh, I will not be surprised at all. Here's the thing. I agree with you. It's a six. It's an inoffensive bubble bath is one of the kinder things you could say about it. And yet, if you told me, yeah, this movie won by default because the other four options sucked more, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. We've definitely had years where all four other movies sucked way more. You know what? That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> a year where a movie that rides entirely on Bing Crosby's charisma, but actually does ride pretty well on Bing Crosby's charisma, is the best movie of the year is like that. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I could believe that, like, that isn't true, but I could also definitely believe that is true. <sighs> There's a weird part of me that's like, watch this movie. Certainly not in a, like, you simply must, before you die, you must see going my way. No. Oh, no. It is not a bucket list film. <laughs> Put it on when you have a hangover and need to clean your house. Yeah. 
Are you folding laundry on a rainy Saturday? Watch Going My Way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, for next week, though, see, this is why I don't think that it's going to be the one, but I could be wrong. There have been movies that people talk about as being great that I have thought were garbage before. Yeah. But next week is Gaslight, so... I do think it is going to be kind of tough for this movie to overcome the double bill of Gaslight and Double Indemnity. Yeah. I feel like that one of those movies has to actually be good. They're relatively famous, you know? Yeah. Again, not a guarantee, though. (laughs) Yes, for sure. Oh, God, we were watching The Good Dinosaur last night because we're going through every Pixar film. And The Good Dinosaur is a bad movie. It's I've never even heard of it. That's because it went through four different directors. Pixar famously will scrap a movie at the last minute and go like, no, we're starting over from page one. This just isn't working. Like they famously brought in Joss Whedon after working on Toy Story for three years to just do a complete page one rewrite of that movie and just completely change what the plot of that was. Like the entire thing where like Buzz and Woody get lost was like a last minute addition. And that's two thirds of that movie. And The Good Dinosaur is a film where Pixar did that like three different times and the movie was still bad and they just went, oh, we give up. Wow. And (laughs) that's a little bit oversimplifying the production history, but the production history was very troubled and the final movie is not very well regarded. But Nikki went, well, at least unlike Cars 2, it isn't racist in a setting where it couldn't possibly be racist. And I went, if I've learned anything from Screen Test of Time, it's never say that until the credits roll. Never say a movie isn't racist until you're watching the credits. Oh, no. And then, in fact, there is a weird scene where there are Mexican-coded dinosaurs, and it's kind of racist. How do you manage to make a dinosaur movie racist? That is... How did they manage to make a movie about anthropomorphic cars racist, Susan? I don't know. It's that John Lasseter touch. To be fair, I haven't seen Cars either, because nothing about it appeals to me, and they kind of creep me out. Oh, uh, that's because they're incredibly creepy. Oh, okay, good. That's because unless you are an eight-year-old boy that is very into Hot Wheels, they raise terrifying existential questions. And you don't want to think about the cars from the Cars movie. And yet the movies constantly demand that you think about them and whether they can die and how they live. Do they eat? What do they eat? Do they fuck? Where do new cars come from? (laughs) Planes have consciousness, but oil rigs don't. These are the things you think about, because otherwise you think about the plot of the movie Cars, and that is impossible. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, this has been Cars Watch 2020. (laughs) That's the name of this podcast, right, Susan? I got on a serious thing. Oh, no, that's not what we're doing? Okay, we're doing, oh, we're doing Screen Test of Time. Right, right. Yes. And this was, this was a 1960s TV show that mysteriously starred Bing Crosby, and I could tell you nothing else about it. And yet, you've been listening for almost 40 minutes. So who's the idiot here? Uh, me? (laughs) (laughs) For starting this podcast? I (laughs) I was going to say our audience, but I guess that's the better answer. I'm sorry, Susan. It's okay. Uh... Audience is not idiots. Why are you being? I don't know. We love each and every one of you. All four of you are very dear to us. I want to start a feud with exactly one of you. So if you would like to be the one audience member 
that listens intensely every week, but like hates me and posts about it on Twitter. I feel like that's when I know we made it, you know, is when like we have the one listener whose just entire thing is like, uh, I don't like David very much. I don't. God, Susan, I <laughs> keep going off on weird tangents. Can okay, we just, we're going to wrap this up then. Can so I, next week we're watching Gaslight. Next week we're watching Gaslight. I'm sorry I can't stay on topic. This movie constantly goes out of focus. Like I'm fucking, I have double vision. And until then. And until then, this was a movie. It eventually becomes a TV show in the 60s. Bing Crosby's pretty good in it. I know I've said that 80 times, but I was really struggling for something else to say. I'm sorry. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Bye. 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 <laughs> 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 <laughs>